sa la verità ma o ma o c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma o ma o sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma o ma o del mondo cosa ne sarà ma o ma o se tu lo sai dicelo un po' ma Long time no vidi, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Two or Three Things I Know. The only podcast about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, today we're talking about this little known indie director named Stanley Kubrick. You might have heard of him, but you know, you might not have. I mean, it's not like he's got entire cinematic tropes named after him. And we're talking about a particular era of Stanley Kubrick because, you know, on this podcast, we aren't really an auteurist podcast. We're a like, trilogy auteurist podcast. That's just a subset of auteurism, though. Unconventional trilogies are something we are a big fan of on this show. So, like, any three movies that sort of have a relationship between each other, you know, we love that shit. And admittedly, the connective tissue here is a bit weak. It's basically three consecutive releases that are all very, very good movies. And all have cinematography by John Alcott, as a matter of fact. And they all have Philip Stone in them, the actor. He's in The Shining, Barry Lyndon, and A Clark Record. They're all adapted from novels. Which is like most of the Kubrick films out there. <laughs> That's not saying much, but... Philip Stone is the dad in A Clockwork Orange. He's Grady in The Shining. And he is one of like the accountants or whatever in Barry Lyndon, which is incredible. And those are the three films we're talking about. Just putting our cards out on the table. Um, the idea is Kubrick in the 70s, but it's more like Kubrick from 71 to 81, just because of when The Shining came out. The Shining kind of throws a wrench into a lot of this, but it's so good that I think we do need to talk about it. I do think it fits in. One thing I wrote is that all three films have an interesting sort of portrayal of mothers, where in A Clockwork Orange, his mother, as well as his father, they're both kind of unknowingly complicit in Alex's shenanigans. And in Barry London, in the end, his mother is the only one standing by him when he's just fumbled the fuck out of the bag and in The Shining The Shining is basically a movie about how awful having a dad is well, yeah, The Shining is just a collapse of the family unit on screen, amongst other things. We will definitely get into. But I think... The irony of me making my dad drive me through the snow to go to a screening of The Shining is not lost on me. To a dilapidated wasteland set off from the real world known as London, Ontario. So yeah, Donson and I saw The Shining together. We'll probably talk about it last because of chronology and all that, but we went out and hung out and saw The Shining in a packed audience. Yeah, I assume at least one other person there is listening. There's a chance, yeah, that if you were at the Highland on the day that you saw us, as you saw the two of us awkwardly walk into the theater and just, like, talk about, like, Oscar movies for about 45 minutes while we were waiting. And if you heard me awkwardly writing notes, I'm sorry. And no one heard you writing notes. I didn't hear you writing notes. People were probably, like, fucking whispering, oh, I saw Room 237, I know the symbolism of what's going on right now, throughout the whole fucking thing. So you're fine to foreground this conversation. Dante, 
What is your relationship with the filmography of Mr. Stanley Kubrick? Honestly, up until very, very recently, very, like, passive, very, I would watch a Kubrick film, like, once every couple of months and, you know, enjoy it. But it was never something, like, I sought out more of. And then... It was just, like, you knew this was good, so you watched them. When I had the opportunity to watch one, I would. I didn't go out of my way to watch them, but something kind of changed in my brain. When I was editing the last episode, as you know, Gwen mentions A Clockwork Orange in that episode, and I was like, I haven't seen A Clockwork Orange, and while I was editing, I was like, huh, I should watch A Clockwork Orange, and I decided, wait, this is actually like one of the greatest films you watched it multiple times in between the two episodes right i watched it twice which in a month is i guess a lot when i was in film school there was a very brief period where i would like wake up early every thursday and watch the devils i did that like three weeks in a row that's impressive when i was in film school there was a very brief period where i would like wake up early every thursday and watch the devils i did that like three weeks in a row i've certainly done that before there was a month where i watched goodfellas three times because it's like comfort food for me at this point but i would constantly watch like the first 10 minutes of apocalypse now as a teenager you just really wanted to listen to the end by the doors and they didn't have spotify i had spotify but it was just like i wanted to see the shot compositions and the editing and the atmosphere that coppola created so i should probably put my cards on the table as like in a previous life i was like a massive stanley kubrick fan I, I still am to a certain extent, but like when I was like 15, I went and rented, my parents had a bunch of free rentals through our Rogers cable subscription thing. Y'all know about Rogers, it sucks, but they had a bunch of free rentals and my parents didn't watch a lot of movies and I was like a sort of amateur film buff at that point. Like I was watching stuff like Terminator a lot and like action movies, you know, the kind of stuff you watch when you're 14, mostly. And then going through that, I chanced upon The Shining and... My parents were all out. My sister was at work. My parents and my little brother went to go to a, a baseball tournament. So I had the house to myself. Uh, I think it was like right before high school exams. So I was like, I just want to have fun for a night and enjoy myself. And then I put on this little movie called The Shining. And I was just completely like shocked that someone was allowed to make a movie like that, if that makes sense. My introduction to The Shining was when I was in about fifth or sixth grade, we had this teacher who showed us this YouTube video that I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen. It is a recut trailer to The Shining that reimagines it as a sort of quirky family comedy. And there's a needle drop of Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. That's the video I'm talking about. I don't think I've ever seen this video actually. Oh my gosh. This teacher shows us this video and he's like, okay, what do you guys think this film is about? And we're all like a bunch of fifth or sixth graders and we're all like, oh, it's a movie, you know, about a kid who just wants to find a dad. And he's like, no, it's a movie about a guy who stays in a hotel and snaps and kills his family. It's really scary and really violent and that's why you have to think critically kids i kind of love that that's that's beautiful i was deeply upset by that i was like how 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 is this something someone's allowed to made how, how is this allowed that's so disturbing i should say that's what danny lloyd 
during the production of the film was led to believe it was like a family drama. And it took him years, apparently, to realize and learn that it was actually a horror film. I think he's like an English teacher, or at least was an English teacher for a long period of, you know, he was a child in the 80s. He probably still is. But like, imagine like going to like high school English and your teacher is like, yeah, I was in The Shining. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, there's a comment on that video that's like, this is the film that Danny Lloyd thought they were making. The first time I saw The Shining, I kind of hated it, to be fully honest. I was like, fuck this. Fuck Stanley Kubrick, whoever that is. I just want to watch Alien again and again, because I was like 14. Despite thinking I hated it, it like wormed its way into my brain, the film. At every moment, every sequence, I was, all of it was like stuck on me. Like every image, every little camera movement. And I started just obsessively reading about it, which is what you do when you're like 14, 15 and getting into movies. And I was like, wait, this is actually a really good movie. That was the first time I think I realized what, like, a serious art movie could do to you, you know? Kubrick fascinates me because he is, on the one hand, he's such a well-known filmmaker that it's also kind of surprising that he's genuinely like one of the best to do it because like if you look at the imdb top 200 i would have to assume since i don't actually look at that shit that there's a whole bunch of stanley kubrick films in there because people love this guy it's like you ask someone what's the best horror film they'll say oh the shining what's the best science fiction film uh 2001 What's the best film about a guy fumbling the bag? Uh, Barry Lyndon. You were never an IMDb user, Dante? I mean, I looked at it, but like in the same way that I looked at Wikipedia. I like posted on the IMDb forums in like 2014 or whenever they got, before they got shut down. That was my introduction to online culture was IMDb forum posts, which might have broken my brain a little bit, but that's okay. Hilarious list if you ever just go through the IMDb 250. A that has, if I can scroll, it's got like The Incredibles right next to The Battle of Algiers, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and like The Handmaiden. I know it's because it's like algorithmic. There's not one guy who likes all these movies, but like it communicates such a deranged and bizarre collection of tastes. Shawshank Redemption, supposedly the best movie ever made. But this stuff was like the key jumping off point for me taking film more seriously, specifically Kubrick's stuff. And then I like remember like taking out books on film studies from my local library or like high school like i was just reading all these books about like how art works so i was like i need to understand why the shining works i need to understand why it got its tender hooks in me and i think i've succeeded a little bit in that regard and then i watched like 2001 because like you watched 2001. That's great. My two favorite movies when I was 16, just to be very autobiographical, were 2001 and Annie Hall and Seventh Seal. This would probably be the three, I'd say. Mine were like Train Spotting and Velvet Gold Mine. Train Spotting fucking rips, though. That's a great film. It's better than fucking Annie Hall, I can say that much. Kubrick is, I think, important to a lot of people because he is, like me, their sort of introduction to more serious filmmaking. And like filmmaking that isn't just Hollywood commercial blockbuster stuff. Stuff that you do kind of need to like read a little bit about or whatever and i know sometimes it can be kind of facile or whatever but like he serves a broadly good function in making people appreciate art and i'm just scanning the imdb list right now the shining dr strangelove paths of glory 2001 are all on it presumably other ones no clockwork orange uh i think it might be yeah it is and full metal jacket full metal jacket is one that i have opinions on but it's not something we're gonna 
delve into today. It's a complex film, one could say. Eyes Wide Shut isn't on it, but I feel like that's one that's really risen in estimation over the last five to ten years, it feels like. It's hard to, like, think this now just because of how loved most of Kubrick's films are, barring his early oddball stuff that no one really likes, is he was not, like, a darling when he was alive and making films. People fucking hated The Shining. His stuff was never particularly critically well received. There were exceptions to that, but like, The Shining received very negative critical reviews. 2001 had kind of mixed reception. Very few of his movies like made money, but now he's like one of the most, if you ask someone like great American filmmakers, they'd probably say like Stanley Kubrick. That's one of their favorites. A lot of his work had kind of middling or mixed receptions. Polly and Kay is a notable Kubrick hater. One of the few places where she and I disagree. She's a noted Kubrick hater. Andrew Saris in the American cinema has some very unsparing words about Kubrick's early work. That book was written in 69, so like, it's not totally fair. Saris also was pretty dismissive of John Cassavetes, which before the 70s wasn't as ridiculous a take as it seems now to be like this Cassavetes guy. I don't know how Saris' thinking would have evolved on Kubrick. I'm sure he wrote about him later. I just haven't read. 2001 made a lot of money, especially when it was like re-released and it was marketed as quote, the ultimate trip. Because there are stories about like hippies going to see it, but only coming for the last 20 minutes and then just dropping acid for like the Stargate. Way cooler than I was the last time I saw 2001. 2001 came out, was popular, but also kind of middling in reception. Kubrick is sort of on a low point of his career because he's trying to get that Napoleon movie off the ground that spoiler alert never materializes into anything. So he just wants to make like a quick low budget by the standards of Hollywood production by the standards of Kubrick. Dollies and all that lighting and all that fucking fancy electronic music that's expensive but like it's not unattainable if you're a Hollywood filmmaker. $15,000 candles. A Clockwork Orange though compared to both 2001 and Barry Lyndon the films that sandwich it is a very low budget movie. Filmmakers used to have so much fucking money, if that's what you call low budget. That's the most production designed movie of all time. It had a 1.3 million dollar budget, according to Wikipedia. So, and that's not adjusted for inflation. 9.5 million, okay. So A Clockwork Orange was this kind of low budget adaptation of this very popular, if very strange novel by famed British writer Anthony Burgess. What's interesting about the novel is that by Anthony Burgess's own admission, it was kind of just a small project of his. It's not even 150 pages. It's just kind of like a thing he wrote. And then Kubrick read it and had his mind blown. So he's like, I'm going to make a movie of this. And as he was reading the book, he already knew he wanted Malcolm McDowell because he saw him in Lindsay Anderson's If and that performance embedded its way into his mind and became permanently associated with the character. And now, of course, it's in all of our minds because of the movie. It's basically impossible reading the novel, which I haven't read the, that book in years. I know you're reading it right now, Dante, but... I have read exactly half of the novel. I don't think the novel is as good as the film. I'm going to be quite frank about that. I think it's an interesting novel at points, but I think Burgess is just kind of a reactionary in a lot of ways. I'm, like, enjoying the novel, but I think that's just because the film is 
so incredible and anything associated with it is kind of good in my mind. If I was just randomly reading this with no knowledge of the film, I would probably be like, this is fine, I guess. Isn't it strange, Dante, that the colors of the world seem more real when you video them on the screen? <laughs> Yeah, the, the book feels more real when you video it on the screen. Burgess kind of resents the novel because he wrote quite a bit, and he's primarily associated with A Clockwork Orange above all of his other writing. And the film was extremely controversial. It had kind of a mixed critical reception, but it did really well, but was also the subject of ban this sick filth because there were fears of copycats running around and doing the same thing, which is why Kubrick pulled the movie from distribution in the UK. It's famously said that it was banned in the UK. It was never banned in the UK, but it was pulled from distribution by Kubrick himself. The irony, of course, is people were like giving him death threats and whatnot to ban the film, you know? Well, that's kind of what the movie's about in a way. It's about the sort of cyclical nature of violence. When I think about it, it has a very very simple thesis and a very unsubtle thesis. There is a scene where a character basically says, we care more about reducing crime than doing good, and it doesn't get less subtle than that. But it's also such a well-made film and such a well-executed film that it's fine that it's stupid. I actually put my cards on the table and say, I've seen the film a bunch of times. I saw it a lot as a teen. This time I did not particularly care for it, which I know is sort of a controversial stance. But I think the film is very interesting. It's a super interesting cultural object, both of a particular era, the future dystopia that was imaginable in 1971, or in the case of the novel, 63. But I think it indulges Kubrick's sort of particular brand of nihilism in a way that I don't particularly like, if that makes sense. I'm still very much in my honeymoon phase with Kubrick. I totally understand why tons of gay teenagers made the movie their personality. Yeah, I may or may not have a fondness for the film because of how formative ContraPoints was to like my whole political understanding of the world. Even before that, David Bowie used the Monte Carlos music as the introduction to some of his touring stuff. If you've ever seen the kind of mixed, I don't think it's a particularly great documentary, the Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, and the Spiders from Mars documentary by Penn and Baker, I think it's a weaker documentary. It opens with Funeral for Queen Mary, which is kind of interesting. The soundtrack is great. I will not hear any complaints about a Clockwork Orange soundtrack. I will hear complaints about the film, but not about the soundtrack. It's fantastic. What's the opposite of indefensible? That's what the soundtrack is to me. It is in indefensible. If you say it's bad, you're just being a contrarian. It's amazing. Especially by the standards of a soundtrack composed in like 1971. That was probably one of the first places that the public really got to see like a Moog synthesizer. It's pronounced Moog, not Moog. I'm gonna be pretentious. Wasn't Wendy Carlos, with some of her earlier stuff, like, one of the first person to use the Moog synthesizer in a remotely mainstream fashion? So it basically was the first time a lot of people were exposed to this. There were obviously usage of synthesizers in previous rock and pop, and obviously there had been avant-garde electronic stuff floating around for a long time. Going back to music concrets and all that, or however you pronounce that shit. But Wendy Carlos's stuff 
was purely all made of synthesizers, and it was her first record that she put out, which was used with a demo version, like a prototype Moog, because she was friends with Bob Moog. What a wonderful name, Bob Moog. So she composed this album. I think this is where, I don't actually know this off the top of my head, where Cooper came into contact with her, was through the fact that she composed a very popular record that was called Switched On Bach, which was a collection of Bach music, but all done purely with synthesizers. And early synthesizers, for our, our listenership, in case you don't know, could only produce one note at a time. They were monophonic. So the problem this created is to do any of those Bach things, you'd have to record it one note at a time, then like tune the synthesizer back because it was really unwieldy as hell. You had to constantly make sure it was in tune, record one note at a time, then record the next note, then record the next note, and then splice them all together. It was, by all accounts, a very hellish process to like make music with it. I don't know how anyone made art before computers. It's all so unwieldy. Early mode stuff took a lot of fucking work. And that's the reason why a lot of early synth music or bands that use synths early on, if you ever listen to like a live album of them doing it, they usually have a far shittier version of the synth parts because they can't recreate that live, at least not in 1971 a lot of the time. And then she makes a bunch of other stuff and then Kubrick wants her to do the Clockwork Orange and a lot of the music she does is really great for it. Have you heard Dante the full version of Time Steps? I have. I literally listened to the soundtrack album just this morning. There's a longer version of some of the songs that was put out for the soundtrack and they're fucking great. A detail that I wanted another boomer detail of note is that Kubrick wanted to use Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother in the soundtrack which is very funny to imagine. This upstart English band that you know didn't have a lot of American tracks called Pink Floyd. Little known band Pink Floyd with little known director Stanley Kubrick. I'm curious how Kubrick would have used the Adam Hart Mother stuff because the song Adam Hart Mother is like 20 minutes long. He would have gone full Coppola mode. Yeah, he could have gone Coppola with it or he would have just used the opening bit, which is incredible if you haven't heard it. It's a great song. Okay, foreground this in the film. I remember first seeing the film and you just see the red as the opening thing. Oh, that is so good. It feels so aware of its reputation from there. You know this is going to be gruesome. You know this is going to be disturbing just because the opening is just red. There's something so iconic about the opening of basically all of Kubrick's movies. It's like, bam, here you fucking go. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. You're in for something. I don't want to call it confidence because it probably wasn't him. It was just how it's edited. That always just, you know, you're in for a good time when you see that. It just pumps you up in a unique and visceral way. And I don't know why, because it's just movie opening credits, but there's something so powerful in the opening credits to all three of these movies, really. Well, also it's the music that plays the funeral for queen mary the The usage of music is also thematically important for the movie pretty obviously his use of music is probably my favorite thing about him i would say a lot of this films use a lot of classical music and it's really easy to use classical music badly on film we've all heard a lot of those classical music songs that filmmakers pick and they just come across as generic and i think part of what makes kubrick good is that he sometimes goes for like stuff that hasn't been used on 
film constantly. Not to say that he doesn't sometimes reach for the William Tell overture, but then afterwards he plays the later part of the William Tell overture that is dark and sad. He seems like, by all accounts, he seems like he was like a classical music nerd, which is a perfectly fine thing to be as far as I'm concerned. We haven't really talked about the plot of A Clockwork Orange. Yeah, we're kind of dodging it because I don't like the plot of the movie. You can explain it. It's basically about this group of teenagers and they all kind of for shits and giggles do this horribly violent stuff. They engage in acts of sexual violence. They go around doing what they call the old ultra-violence. They also just rob people on top of all the sexual violence as it's like established. I kind of don't think the robbery is the controversial thing about A Clockwork Orange. If it was just a movie about robbers. Yeah, there's a lot of movies about robbers. I'm just setting the scene. They're doing a lot of crime, basically. And then Alex gets caught and he's put in prison and in prison he undergoes this unique psychological treatment which is supposedly to cure him of his violent urges and the biggest difference between the film and the novel is that in the novel there is an epilogue that basically says Alex was cured and the movie ends much more ambiguously and this is because Kubrick read a version of the novel that did not have the epilogue in it so we just didn't know it was there but I think it makes the film a lot more effective. It would not have worked. If Alex was cured it would have felt like such a pointless story. It would have been so unsatisfying if it was just like okay he's not violent anymore now. I think one thing that's really interesting about that aspect of the movie is it also tries to raise a question that I don't think the movie fully answers and I don't think explores as much as it should is the question of what does it mean to be a good person? There's the priest character is like no you must have free will. If a man ceases to choose he ceases to be a man which you know is riffing on behavioral psychology and the thinking was you could just condition people to do whatever you wanted them to do which it turns out the brain is a little more complicated than that but like it was a very in vogue concept in the early 20th century and there's a very famous scene in the film where as part of alex's reconditioning they have him strapped to this contraption and his eyes are like glued open and he's shown these films of these horrifically violent actions, gang rapes, holocaust, that type of stuff. And the idea is through both physical and mental torture that he's just gonna end up being utterly repulsed by it. And in the end, what gets to him is they play his beloved Ludwig Vaughn over the footage of the violence. And because he's also a really big fan of Beethoven, his two favorite things are violence in Beethoven. To say something mean, I kind of despise the pop cultural trope of, oh, this guy's a murderer, but he likes good music. It's not bad in this movie, but it's made fucking insufferable in, like, Silence of the Lambs, where it's like, read Marcus Aurelius Carius. That appeals to a particular demographic of, like, oh, this guy's a killer, but he's also smart, you know? I don't think Kubrick is doing that fully, but I think this kind of cemented that trope, if that makes sense. Alex is 
I don't want to say he's not smart, but... He's clearly smart-ish. But I don't think the movie is like, this guy's a fucking genius. He's a good liar. He has a degree of cultural literacy in the form of knowing about Beethoven and is persuasive. He's a very good bullshitter, basically. The reason he is caught is because he's basically spent the first half of the film trying to coerce his droogies into them being basically his servants. And they get fed up with him and basically leave him to get caught by the police for killing a woman. I think one of the most effective bits of the movie is the bit when he's in the police interrogation from the perspective of him looking at the cops as they're like, you're a murderer, Alex. And he's like addressing the audience. That I think is quite unsettling. And it's basically going, hey, you audience, you're Alex in this situation. Or at the very least, it's asking you to empathize with Alex. I think there's something kind of effective about that, that the movie, I think if the movie makes any case, it makes a very strong case that you shouldn't torture people even if they do bad things, which is kind of a layup, but you know, sometimes it needs to be said. There's a pretty strong anti-psychiatry bent in the film, or at least the 70s version of psychiatry, which... That's a very 60s, 70s concern, is psychiatry as form of social control and all that. And the fact that, like, a lot of mental institutions did basically engage in sort of entrapment and torture-type practices. There is also this really uncanny, I don't think intentional parallel between the Ludovico treatment and gay conversion therapy, if that makes any sense. In gay conversion therapy they show you clips of heterosexuality or that's a part of it that's not the whole thing it's a whole horrible practice but that's something they try to do to cure gayness particularly the sort of gay conversion therapy that happened in like the 70s where they would electrocute people that probably still does happen but like you know it's not institutionalized it's horrible and i think that's among the reasons that i think a lot of gay teenagers or young adults identify with the film is because it is like it's basically taking Burgess, who's sort of Catholic and kind of a homophobe, and it's sort of taking his nightmare world. What is the most terrifying thing that this kind of sort of conservative English writer could imagine? And it's basically a society where people have sex constantly. And where everything is bright. Everything is bright. Everything's garish. There's open and overt eroticism. People are drawing puns about gay sex on the thing outside of Alex's parents' place. The whole film has this subtle gayness to it. And I think some of that, there's a lot of implied homosexual rape in the film, both in the context of the prison and also Alex's community support guy or whatever, who basically is implied to be a child molester, you know? I mean, he like reaches for Alex's crotch at one point. The movie does kind of communicate moral decay via homosexuality, which is a whole, do- like, I don't know Kubrick's personal politics. I don't think he would fully buy that the way someone like a Burgess would. I feel like the film is taking too much from Funeral Parade of roses to be truly homophobic. There's something to be said about Stanley Kubrick in the late 60s watching a film like Funeral Parade of Roses having no judgment about the subject matter and just seeing it purely as techniques to use. That's weirdly progressive. And then he hires a trans woman to do the soundtrack. 
I think that's the gap between Kubrick and Burgess is Kubrick is less repulsed. Burgess in the end kind of believes that we could construct a good and morally decent society if we all just learned to become good Catholic parents, which is absurd. It's moronic to think that we could solve social problems if everyone just became right-wing shitheads. And also very notably, the epilogue is chapter 21, which has symbolic connotations of being the age of adulthood. So it's like going, this is Alex's past. And he can then transcend his childishness through loving the family unit. And I think Kubrick correctly goes, bullshit. The Kubrick film is sort of like, we are stuck in this bullshit, terrible society. And there's all these people that want to cynically manipulate Alex towards their own end, either in the government or in the opposition. They're all just cynics and nothing will ever get better and crime will only rise. And that I think is how I interpret the film. And I think that's where it gets a reactionary streak. I feel like it's a film that just points out how hypocritical everyone is, how hypocritical people are to view Alex as evil, while there's also systemic cruelty that's just everywhere. And I think that's one of the theses of the film. One of the really smart points the film makes is that two of Alex's ex-droogs become cops, and they basically act like they were before. They have now found a socially sanctioned way of being violent shitheads, and as long as they're wearing the uniform, they can get away with basically anything. Which, I think that is a smart point, but I don't want to be so down on the film. I definitely understand why people like it. I just think there is a constant undercurrent of misogyny and a sort of very reactionary worldview. But I can also see how someone with slightly different priorities than me could read it as just camp. That's where I'm at. I'm not saying people are wrong to like it. I think there's a lot that's understandable. As I said before, if you're like a gay teenager or something like that, I definitely understand why you would identify with it. But I think one case study and what I don't like about the film is when Alex kills the woman, the film kind of hates her. I think that's the only bit of violence in the film that I think the movie portrays her as this absurd and kind of insane woman. And I don't know if I like that. It feels kind of cruel towards her. I am firmly in the opinion that it is a very camp film. And I'm going to sound like a sicko for saying this, but it's a very funny movie. The prison warden is like a John Cleese character. Like he does the silly walks and everything. Or like the bit with the line when he's going to prison. It's like, no, stand in front of the line, stand in front of the line. Like a lot of it has this sort of Monty Python-ishness to it. I think for me, the funniest bit in the film is the part where they're doing the Ludovico technique and... Alex is just desperately going like, please, I'm a good person now. I think that violence is bad. And he's just totally bullshitting. It's just very, very funny. I should also say I love Patrick McGee so much. The part where he's in the old man's house is just nonstop riffing. Patrick McGee is fucking great. I love him also in Barry Lyndon, but we'll get to Barry Lyndon in a little bit. McGee is kind of a clockwork orange, is kind of like a sort of liberal moralist, it feels like. He's like, oh, Alex, you've been victimized by modern society. And then Alex is like, that's right, I'm a victim, which has a kind of, you know, perverse irony to it. The whole last third of the film is just people bullshitting, and it's very, very funny. I think that's the part of the movie I like the most. The first half, I did not like. I think that's how I get my opinion about it out there. The first half, I was like, I get it. The first half is well done, but it's also, I can see why people find it a bit excessive. 
and it only has so much to say. The bulk of what the film has to actually say is, I would say, in the second half of the film. I think particularly the political manipulation that goes on in the film is really interesting. There's another detail that I find interesting is where when they're talking about the Ludovico technique, they say our prisons are overcrowded and pretty soon we're going to need a lot more political prisoners. And that's like a throwaway line. And that feels very new left politics era sort of sentiments of like, or something that you'd see in like Peter Watkins, the sense that there's this coming kind of authoritarian crackdown on the new left, both in England and the United States, like Punishment Park, kind of, which also came out in 71, as a matter of fact. Great year. 71 is probably up there for like the years of like very morally complicated films working through questions about sexuality and violence. My like maybe favorite movie ever, The Devils, came out that year. Fun fact, you know Ken Russell was originally supposed to direct A Clockwork Orange? That actually does check. Just the film's visual, there's a very Ken Russell-y sensibility to the almost camp visuals where like everyone has little dick statues in their house. That's very The Devils. I think The Devils is a better movie though, I'm gonna be fully honest. I think The Devils is campier and also more disturbing. The Devils resonates because it's playing with like religious imagery which always kind of gets to me when done well, which this film doesn't really have, but yeah. A Clockwork Orange I think has a constant on the brink sense of authoritarianism about it. The atmosphere of the movie is like, this is the future we are headed towards as envisioned by someone like Burgess. This is the future liberals want. Yeah, it's sort of the future liberals want, but I also think it's sort of the future a utilitarian psychologist would want. And you could get all Foucault about it and talk about, like, psychiatry and discipline and all sorts of bullshit. Not bullshit, but you know what I mean? Like, all that stuff. There's probably a lot to be written that's, like, a clockwork orange and, like, Deleuze's concept of the society of control. It's a fascinating film. But I don't like it anymore. I'm sorry. There's a lot that I can say about it that I think is, like, interesting or whatever. But I'm just, like, on a visceral level, I just kind of feel icky about it. I'm not that mature yet, unfortunately. And I'm not saying you will become me, but I do see the way you talk about it, the way I felt, like, five years ago about it. Maybe I am just too much of an annoying feminist school now or whatever to, like, take it seriously. But I'm just, like, I don't really know if I'm okay with some of this stuff. I think I've mellowed out, surprisingly. Like, I think I hated people a lot more when I was in high school. I think this is the movie that's the most fodder for the thesis that Kubrick hates humanity. Yeah, The Shining is very cynical as well, but it's only really cynical to this one particular guy. The Shining is cynical about, like, the arc of history. The Shining is more about how this one guy fucking sucks as opposed to how humanity fucking sucks. Yeah, whereas A Clockwork Orange, everyone's a cynic, everyone's selling out, everyone's just trying to get sexual or economic or political ends from it. And it feels a bit like the ending of Dr. Strangelove, you know, the we'll meet again. I don't know if you've seen Dr. Strangelove, actually. I literally watched it, like, just a couple nights ago, but yeah, I have seen Dr. Strangelove. But Dr. Strangelove has this very ironic glee in the destruction of humanity, and I think A Clockwork Orange is kind of that logically culminated to a two-hour film. I don't know if I like that. I think Dr. Strangelove does it better, because I think Dr. Strangelove has this sort of ironic glee that I think is easier to do on a topic like nuclear war versus rape. That's how I differentiate the two. But yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit of a scold here. I just want to, I'm not saying you're a bad person if you like the film, and to my dear, dear listeners, dear reader, or whatever Alex says a bunch in the film, if you like the movie, 
I'm happy for you. I want to be like you. I have to stand my ground. <laughs> That's way too apologetic, but you know. Is there anything else that we need to say about a clock record? Because I do just want to talk about Barry Lyndon for a while. That's fair. I need to get a band-aid before we talk about Barry Lyndon. I'll edit this out. It would be a very good bit to do an intermission in a Kubrick episode, though. So in 1975, four years after A Clockwork Orange, came Stanley Kubrick's next film, Barry Lyndon. It feels like one of those things where people whose favorite Kubrick is Barry Lyndon will make it abundantly clear that their favorite Kubrick is Barry Lyndon. It's a great film. I will say that, you know, no one should dispute this. It's, it's great. It is an incredible picture. It's kind of also in the shadow of the attempted Napoleon movie because it's trying to be a period. It was not trying to be. It is a period piece. It's trying to be a period piece as if it's not widely regarded as one of the most authentic films about the Seven Years War ever made. Yeah, and I'm not a Seven Years War head, so I can't really tell you if it's an authentic Seven Years War film, you know, but I know it's a good film. Yeah, I trust the opinion of the geniuses. I don't know anything about Seven Years War, really. I mean, I know a little bit, but I couldn't tell you how authentic is. There are military history nerds who will fucking talk about every little hyper-specific detail as to how people shoot guns and move around and tactics. Frankly, that is not what I find interesting about Barry London. What works about Barry London the most for me is it falls into a very unique genre of films that's basically like a triumphant rise and then just a spectacular fall from grace. That's just one of the best genres of art. Every good crime movie is like that. As Letterboxd user StavvyBaby69 says, Barry Lyndon is, quote, basically Goodfellas, unquote. To be annoying, Barry Lyndon is, in the tradition, and the novel it's based on, The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Thackeray, is a picaresque novel. And a picaresque novel is, in particular, sort of convention within fiction, where something is divided into a series of episodes where there's a rise and fall arc where they work their way up in a series of increasingly comic excavates and then they kind of fall back down at the end. Barry Lyndon is a picaresque. A Confederacy of Dunces is a picaresque. Persona 5 is allegedly a picaresque as it says on Wikipedia with no source. Yeah, which I love. I love that someone just put that in there. But yeah, picaresques are usually centered around the central character who's a rogue, like a scammer wanting to get one up on people. He wants to pick of them. He wants to pick of their rest. Ah. That's not what it means at all. Picaro is Spanish for rascal. He's that type of guy. Yeah, so he's like kind of schemy. Like a poor person who aspires to become a rich person, basically. So basically Fox and his friends. It's Fox and his friends. It's Goodfellas. It's anything where it's cleanly dividable into episodes that sometimes don't really connect to each other. They just go from point A to point B to point C to point D. Yeah, when I think of Barry London, I barely even think of specific scenes from the movie. I just think of the whole fucking picture, you know? Yeah, you think of all the antics.
picks. And it's why the picaresque is such a good literary genre. They're very cleanly dividable into episodes. You said you've never watched the movie in one sitting, and I think it works. Every time I watch Barry Lyndon, it's a whole fucking day affair, and I pause during the intermission and I just walk around for like an hour thinking about it. Yeah. The experience of watching Barry Lyndon for me is much like the experience of reading a novel where it takes a long time because you're constantly taking it in and like you can't take it in in one sitting. I do not know if I could handle seeing Barry London in the theater. I feel like it would just overwhelm me so much. While I could handle seeing The Shining in a theater, as Gwen can attest to. Yeah, you handled it very well. And I could handle a Clockwork Orange in a theater. Clockwork Orange in a theater I feel like would be awkward just because I would probably, if people were laughing at the wrong parts, I'd kind of be like... That kind of happened when we were at The Shining. That happens at every movie. I have never seen Fire Walk With Me in a theater, despite having had opportunities to for primarily that reason. I've heard very bad accounts of what showgirls revival screenings are like for similar reasons. I remember seeing Inland Empire, and it's one of those movies where it's like, I'm glad you guys are having a good time, but why are you laughing at this woman recounting her sexual assault just because her line delivery is a bit weird? But yeah, Barry Lyndon is is a fascinating film divided into sort of two parts. It literally is divided into two parts. There are intertitles. And they're beautiful intertitles. Yeah, so like the first half of the movie is about how Barry Lyndon becomes Barry Lyndon. And the second half of the movie is about how Barry Lyndon stops being Barry Lyndon. It's so fucking good. Like, do not get me started on Barry Lyndon. Oh my gosh. So the character, his name is actually Redmond Barry originally, and he's an Irish man living in the 1700s. I love the opening of the movie with the duel that sets off the film. The joke at the beginning where it's like, oh, and I'm sure he would have made a fine gentleman had he not been killed in a duel and then a meet, boom. <laughs> It sort of sets it up and you don't really know who the two people are standing at the duel at the beginning because you're looking at it from so far away with no context. Lots of great duels in this movie. But then kind of immediately that establishes the tone of the film, which is lightly comic. I don't want to say it's the funniest Kubrick film because I could literally say that about most of his films, but it is very funny. It's very funny in a very wry, ironic sort of way. It's both the funniest and the saddest movie ever made. It's very much just Fox and his friends, which is, I think, why I like it a lot. So Barry Lyndon, he tries to marry his cousin, basically. But then an English captain or whatever wants her. But the English guy is loaded. So the whole Barry family want Lyndon to leave. And then Lyndon challenges, not Lyndon, I keep calling him Lyndon, even though he isn't Lyndon yet, but you know what I mean? He challenges him to a duel. Barry runs off after having won the duel and then gets robbed of all of his shit. So then he has no choice but to join the English army. And then after some antics go on there, his friend who he meets again, who is also in the English army, dies. And then he decides to desert. And then he steals an officer's uniform, which he finds out because the officer above him is having a gay relationship. And he sees him in the water, naked with another man. And then Barry just runs off with his stuff and pretends to be him. And then that takes him to Holland, where he has an affair with 
with a woman, and then he meets up with the Prussians, but the Prussians suspect that he's a liar, and he's a deserter, and then they prove that he is, and then they forcibly constrict him into the Prussian army. I'm sorry for just recounting all the details, but like- So much happens. There's a rhythm to it. He's in the Prussian army, he becomes a war hero in the Prussian army, and then he moves down to, I forgot where it is, and he has to spy on an Irish man named Le Chavier. He decides to instead team up with that guy so he can leave, and then he does that, and then he starts off this gambling enterprise with the Chevalier, and that's how he falls into the court of Linden, and falls in love with Lady Linden, whose husband is slowly dying, basically. Probably the funniest scene in the movie is the scene where the husband dies. Yeah, that's one of my favorite bits. It just happens so suddenly, and then that followed by the intermission is just very, very funny. So the husband dies, and the second half of the film is about Lyndon basically trying to become a lord, because if he can become a lord, then he's financially set, and his mother very much encourages him to become a lord, because then if he becomes a lord, he has a certain amount of pay and inheritance and all that stuff. He isn't just going to be left on the street if his wife dies first. His very beautiful wife, played by Marissa Bernson. We've gone far too long talking about Barry Lyndon without mentioning the fact that he is played by friend of the pod, Ryan O'Neill. I think it takes a little bit for me to believe that Ryan O'Neill is Barry Lyndon, but I think it clicks after a little bit. Ryan O'Neill is maybe the most underrated American actor this side of Brad Davis. And I think a lot of that is because he had so much notoriety through soap operas. He's a good actor, actually. That's right, baby. He was on, according to Wikipedia, over 400 episodes of Peyton Place. I know basically nothing about soap operas, but I have so much respect for the art form. I've only seen a single soap opera when I was at my friend's house once. My friend's parents were watching it. I forget which one it even was. It's one of those British ones, whatever. My grandpa was very into Coronation Street. Yeah, it was Coronation Street. That was it. It was Coronation Street. And I think that's probably one reason that Ryan O'Neill doesn't get a lot of respect. But also, he doesn't get a lot of respect because he was in a lot of kooky movies. Like, yeah, he wasn't a Kubrick, but it's Barry Lyndon. He was in What's Up, Doc. He was in the best movie ever made, Tough Guys Don't Dance. And he was in a movie that nobody talks about anymore, Love Story, which, you know, is a big hit, but no one really thinks about it anymore. Love Story inspired one of the greatest lines in any comedy ever, which is in an episode of Peep Show. Jez is in a book club, and he says, oh, this book is a love story. Should I compare it to another love story? Perhaps Love Story? It's one of my favorite lines from any TV show. Love Story is a movie I only know exists because I see the soundtrack at record stores. Yeah, Barry Lyndon, you know, he dicks around, he gains all this vast fortune and wealth, and then he blows it all away. He has a stepson who hates him. Oh, his stepson is like the best character in the movie, though. Yeah, uh, he has a stepson who hates his presence. The stepson sees him as a scoundrel who wants to take all of his mother's money. Lyndon abuses him physically and like whips him all the time and tries to make him conform and accept him as the father, but he refuses to. Because he says, no, Lord Bullington is my father. And he pointedly calls him Redmond Barry constantly. He dead names Barry London. 
Yeah, which is unthinkable. And I think the entire movie, if it has a claim for anything, it's just gorgeously made. It's incredible to look at. I think my favorite shot is one where you see when there's a war going on, you see it through the perspective of the window, and then it slowly zooms in on the window, and you see this whole battle going on around you, and then you see people run back up, and then the camera tracks through the building. There's so many moments in the film where there's just a very striking tableau, and Kubrick just zooms in on it, or zooms out. It's a very overwhelming film, just with how much is going on constantly. The Shining, I find comparatively less overwhelming. That might sound weird. They're overwhelming in different ways. The Shining is just three people and a bunch of kooky supporting characters. Barry Lyndon feels like literally everything. I think the thing with The Shining is, I think we kind of expect horror movies to be weird in a way that we don't expect period pieces to be weird. I kind of have a generic sense of the sort of surrealism that is acceptable in a horror movie. It's not surrealism here, but you know what I mean? There's a certain kind of visual density that I think I can mentally write off as, oh, it's a horror movie. A lot is happening in Barry London at all times, and I cannot possibly recount it all. And it's an achievement of not only Kubrick, but cinematographer on all three of these films, John Alcott. Everyone talks about the fact that, oh, they didn't use lights, really. They light everything naturally and with candles and they tried to recreate paintings, and I think that all works really well. But I think the film is a lot more dynamic than that. There's fight scenes where there's handheld cameras, and, and there's all these, like, sweeping bits. Not just, like, static tableaus. A lot of the time, it's these very complicated camera movements. It's a Kubrick movie. The camera's gonna fucking move. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy to write it off as, oh, there's technical trickery going on. I think beyond the technical trickery, it's just very... Every decision works. It would be really easy for you to, like, to go, like, oh, you know, it's well shot, but the story isn't really compelling. But the way it's shot does such a great job of reflecting the worldview of the film. Because it is a film that's super engulfed in 18th century English politics, amongst other things. So the style and the, all the choices leading up to it and the sense of formal regal beauty and all that works. And also it works from this sort of faux gentlemanness of Barry Lyndon. It all works very well in that regard. Also, I love the music in the film. The music is incredible. The handle title sequence is just the da 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 da. Like, that is such incredible, and that becomes, like, the theme of the film. Like I said, Kubrick's use of music might be one of my favorite things about him. I mean, we can talk for, like, days about his dolly shots, the Kubrick stare, his dynamic cinematography, his grandiose set design. The Steadicam in The Shining. <laughs> His abuse of actors, which is a very tired talking point, by the way. But to me, his use of music is just incredible. It's incredible in a way that maybe no other director can come close to. Maybe Scorsese, but with Scorsese... Well, Scorsese is using music in a very different way. Scorsese isn't using classical music. Scorsese uses music in a different way, and he uses more contemporary music, while Kubrick uses mostly classical pieces, and he uses them exceptionally. Scorsese is a genius in terms of using pop music on film. I'll say that. But I think that's a different sort of thing than what Kubrick is doing, where Kubrick is great at reappropriating classical pieces to fit the tone and mood of his films. And it works even if you don't really know what the music is. Like, you could just assume this was all composed by one guy. It all has a 
certain coherence to it, which is also incredible. But the film is just full of visuals and information and little details. And you can tell it's something that was made by someone who was really obsessive about historical accuracy. But that's not even the main enjoyment point of the film. It's just it's an exceptionally well-made piece of filmmaking. And every character, every drama beat, it's appropriately epic in scope and scale. It's funny. It's tense. It's tragic. The ending, even if I'm just dead emotionally, the ending, I'll just think about it and I'll be like, I'll just start crying at like Whole Foods thinking about the ending of Barry Lyndon. All men are equal now, rich and poor. The epilogue has such a dark, ironic jab at it where it is like, I want to see if I can just pull up the, the title card. It was in the reign of George III that aforesaid personages lived and quarreled. Good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. Which has such like a... It's going, oh yeah, this guy who was a relatively poor person who strived past his social situation. He got totally fucked, but you know, not anymore. Now we're all equal, you know. The rich and poor are equal now. The good or bad, we now have capitalism, you know, things are great. I know the film doesn't think that, but like, that's the jokey thing implied is, okay, now we don't live under this. But then the irony only kind of makes you realize oh a lot of these same sorts of things happen huh but in different forms you know huh interesting film the music is great in this film the cinematography is great this is like the i understand it's annoying when someone is just like wow this great cinematography in this movie because it's like okay cinematography in service of what talking about great cinematography when you're talking about Kubrick is never really wrong is the thing even if it's the most hacky 14 year old it's like yeah Jacob you do have a point about how the cinematography in Barry Lyndon quote goes hard as hell unquote you can't disagree with that it does go hard it goes hard in the service of the film and I think a lot of the people who were inspired by Kubrick I don't think grasped that that his directorial choices are in service of a narrative. Whereas there are a lot of filmmakers who came after who were like, I just need to do these symmetric painterly shots and people will realize I'm a genius. Get me a dolly so people will think I'm a good filmmaker. But Kubrick is such a precise user of these things. Whatever the opposite of haphazard, that's how I would describe the style that Kubrick makes films. He makes films in the exact opposite way that Barry Lyndon acts. Barry Lyndon is always just fucking around and finding out, while Stanley Kubrick is behaving incredibly precisely. The precise, the stiltedness of the camera moves, the way it's edited, the flowing long takes, all of it does a very good job in servicing the narrative. And that's something that a lot of the filmmakers who were inspired by Kubrick don't grasp. You saw Hereditary at some point, right? No. It's a perfectly fine movie. It's kind of middling. But like, I think the one thing that something like that internalized from Kubrick that I think is a negative trait is symmetrical shots are good. If we have enough symmetry, if everything is standing perfectly like a Renaissance painting or whatever, that's good cinematography. And I think that's a really bad trait that people have internalized. And I think Kubrick uses it so well in something like Barry Linton that it would be really easy to think that, oh, you can just plug and play that into any sort of film. But yeah, Barry Lyndon is fantastic. It's probably Kubrick's also most literary film, if that makes sense. I know Clockwork Orange has all the narration that is oftentimes ripped a little from the novel or stuff like that. But Barry Lyndon just has this atmosphere of English literary culture about it. For something that is so filmic through and through, Barry Lyndon does have a very novelistic feeling to it. The experience of watching Barry Lyndon 
is like reading a novel in one sitting if you do happen to watch it in one sitting. It's just so densely packed. There's so much information and yet it feels like it could not be anything except a film. I know it's based off of the novel, but who the fuck has read the novel? Something like the final duel in the film was added by Kubrick. People have read A Clockwork Orange, people have read The Shining, people have not fucking read whatever that Barry Lyndon novel is, I'm sorry. The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Thackeray. Sorry to all the William Thackeray fanatics who have gotten this far. The Thackeray has. It sort of prefigures The Shining in one regard, and that's a very Oedipal film. One thing I wrote in my notebook about these films is about the portrayal of mothers, but when we talk about it, there's also a very interesting portrayal of fathers. The mother and the father in A Clockwork Orange play more or less the same role, but in Barry Lyndon, Barry Lyndon is the father, and it's Lord Bullingdon's. Well, he loves his mother. And also, Barry Lyndon's mother, after his father dies, is just like, yeah, I'm not gonna remarry, I'm just gonna devote myself to my son. And also, Barry Lyndon's mother, after, um, his father dies, is just like, yeah, I'm not going to remarry, I'm just going to devote myself to my son. There is, throughout the whole film, a constant incest implied. The reminder that incest was a very real thing that people were getting themselves into back in that day. And I like when the English captain reacts to Lyndon loving Nora. He's just like, oh, the Irish, the English aren't like this, or whatever. The whole film is structured around, like The Shining, the collapse of a family. That is such a rarity in film, or at least to see it done so effectively. There are a lot of movies that are about the family, capital T, capital F, but there are way less films that are, I think, about fully talking about and showing, like, the complicated dynamics that emerge, particularly with Lyndon as a stepfather, who then has his son, and then has the stepson that both, who's resentful of the fact that, that the other son is getting all this stuff, you know? He has the birthday party, where there's everyone there, and there's the magician who is being like, oh, you're so great. I'll bow for the good son, you know. And that is something I deeply understand as a child of a remarried mother. The sort of, you understand where those feelings are coming from. That's all I'm going to say, because obviously my parents aren't doing Barry Lyndon shit. But you also personally aren't doing Barry Lyndon shit. You aren't like riding around attempting to seduce upper class women. Well, I don't have any cousins, so that's a whole genre of Barry Lyndon like activity that I'm just locked out from. You could get into gambling. That's the other possibility on that regard. But I think, yeah, it's a great film. I don't really have much to say about it, which is weird to say. It's a hard film to talk about, honestly. A Clockwork Orange and The Shining are both like much to think about films. And Barry Lyndon, it's not as interesting to talk about Barry Lyndon just because all you can really do is say it's beautiful. I mean, that's very reductionist of how much much is in the film, but there's only so many ways to say it's very dense. But I just want to say the duel at the end of the film is great, where Lyndon fires the gun into the ground as he's basically telling his son, come at me. That gunfight also has obvious Oedipal implications of trying to kill your father for the honor of your mother. And do you have satisfaction? That is deeply sexual to me. I don't know if it would be in the context of the novel or the 1700s, but like in a modern context, are you satisfied with this firing of this phallic object at your father? Give me another hour or so and I'll just start talking about like oh everything in this film is 
phallic. I'll devolve into a Freudian. I think you are smart, though, to also flag that Kubrick's films are not just about fathers and sons, but about fathers and mothers and mothers and sons also. And I would say The Shining is probably his most obvious film about mothers just because... Not a lot of daughters in his films. This That feels worth flagging a little. I feel like the figure of the daughter is one that of the four members of the nuclear family, Kubrick is the least familiar with because he has been a son and he has been a father and he has had a mother and he has had a father, but he's never been a daughter, transvestigation stuff notwithstanding. And I mean, he has a daughter, but I don't know if he's ever really interrogated the implications of that personally, it might not have occurred to him to do that. While you can't really not think about having a mother because you have a mother literally from the second you're born. That's just how it works. Well, that's also a classical criticism of the Oedipal framework is that it sidelines thinking about girls where it's sort of secondary. Notwithstanding Jung's weird gender-swapped version of it. Which is really bad, kind of grotesquely reactionary in ways that I don't think people think about enough. Oh god, I don't want to turn this into a riffing on Jung podcast, but... I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. I was in an English seminar the other day, and someone said the Electra Complex was a Freudian concept, and I had to restrain myself from turning and going, it is not, actually. And we just moved on with talking about the thing we were actually talking about. But I was working really hard not to do that because it bothers me so much when people do that. Okay, whatever. This has been two or three things I know about psychoanalysis, but to do some more two or three things we know about psychoanalysis and history and the family. The Shining, 1980 film adapted from a Stephen King novel, which I think came out in like 76. I have not read the Stephen King novel, but I know... I read it a long time ago. This is not a fucking book club. This is a film podcast, so... I should point out that The Shining, the title is inspired by the John Lennon song, Instant Karma. The bit that we all shine on, like the moon and the stars and the sun, that bit, you know. Frankly, I kind of think that reading The Shining would ruin the movie for me. It's a bit like reading, I don't know if you've read the 2001 novel, I have. It tries to just explain all of the symbolism in the movie, and it doesn't really add anything. If anything, it makes it weaker. To quote the movie Metropolitan, Politan, I don't read books. I prefer good literary criticism. <laughs> I've read about The Shining and how the film and the novel differ a lot. And from what I've gathered, basically all the changes that Kubrick made are like smart and better and more interesting. And I really don't care about how faithful the film is to the novel if it's a good film. That's just how I feel about adaptations as a whole. If it's good, it's good, basically, is my attitude a lot of the time. It's if the film works on its own terms, I don't really care of the novel in that case. I think it's interesting to contrast them a lot of the time. I think you can do a lot of fruitful stuff with talking about the adaptational changes made in like Jaws. Or conversely, that's why I'm never really bothered when there's like bad horror movie sequels. Like The Shining does have now a really shitty sequel in the form of Doctor Sleep. I was half considering watching Doctor Sleep in the lead up to this recording, but I was like, I don't actually give a shit. I paid like $4 to go see it once and I did not like it. It was like a period of my life where I was not mentally well and I would just spurn doing homework and I'd go see movies. And that was one of the movies I went to go see. I would just go to the theaters to see anything because there was like a cinema I could go to that showed second run stuff for like $4. It's closed now, unfortunately, but I would go see stuff just constantly and I was really miffed by that one. But yeah, The Shining... 
1980, a bad year in general in American society for various reasons. But but one good thing happened. The Shining was a movie you could go see in a theater. It's fantastic. The Shining is just a fantastic movie. I don't know if it's my favorite Kubrick movie, but I would say if someone who knows nothing about Kubrick asks me what Kubrick movie should I watch, I would probably point them in the direction of The Shining because it feels like the best intersection of accessibility when you compare it to some of his other stuff that does not let up on the craft at all. I would agree, but if I were to show my mom a Kubrick movie, it would be Barry Lyndon. Maybe that's just a mom thing. I feel like moms would dig Barry Lyndon because it is a very pro-mom movie. I think if I were to show my mom Kubrick. Moms also just love 19th, 18th century literature. It's one of their things. I wouldn't say that The Shining is anti-mom. It's anti-dad. Literally one thing I wrote in my notes is just movie about how dads suck. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that King really reacted to negatively is that Jack Torrance in his novel is like a bad guy, but he kind of redeems himself at the end of the novel but in the film he's just a piece of shit through and through he just sucks and he sucks right up from the gate and that's the source of complaint a lot is that jack torrance is a bad person at the beginning of the movie i don't really regard this as a bad thing to be fully honest i remember reading that stephen king opposed to the casting of jack nicholson because he wanted someone like robert redford or some other conventionally beautiful man because jack nicholson does look kind kind of weird and it's like that makes it too obvious that he snaps and it's like it works Jack Nicholson is awesome. Don't look up anything about his personal life, but he's a great actor and he's very well cast. The opening sequence is just also incredible. All the Kubrick films are great at getting your tender hooks in you in the opening, where you have, again, working with Wendy Carlos that like bong, bong, bong. Um, and it's notable, I would say, The Shining shifts away from 19th and 18th century classical music. It uses a lot of Ligeti, Gregory Ligeti, or however you say his name. People like that, where it's using all these strings and penderecki and all these very 20th century, very alienating, very angry, weird songs. And I think that's even established in the beginning. I just love the percussion in the theme where you get all those little, like, dun-dun, little sound effects that go on throughout it. Oh, it is just such a perfect perfect movie is how I would describe it. I don't even know if we have to recount the plot, to be fully honest. I mean... You've seen The Shining. I cannot imagine someone having not seen The Shining. I can imagine having not seen Barry Lyndon, and I can imagine having not seen A Clockwork Orange. But if you're like me in fifth grade, and you have this weird TA who showed you a video of The Shining making it look like it's a family comedy, and you haven't seen The Shining, it's about a man who's a writer who works as the sort of caretaker of this hotel when it's off season in the winter and he moves in there for the season with his family his wife Wendy and his son Danny and everything is fine at first but well no everything is not fine at first there's all these bad omens and the NECs a repeated flashback or flash forward of blood coming out of an elevator Danny has an imaginary friend named Tony who he talks to who tells him to do things it's also established that jack torrance had previously injured danny like he drunkenly dislocated his shoulder i think wendy torres his wife is 
so exceptionally handled in the film. People don't like the way she's handled in the film, and those people are um, wrong, and they should feel bad about it. What I don't get about the criticism of Wendy is it's like, oh, she's too shrieking, she's too whatever. I'm not an expert on how people act in these sort of abusive situations. It seems deranged of me to be like, oh, she should be making totally rational calculations. Because I mean, I know what I am when I'm in comparatively lower stakes trauma. Even before all this weird supernatural shit starts happening, she's married to an implied abusive alcoholic who has somewhat implied to be on several situations physically abused their young child and presumably she is either like and then she has to spend the winter in this fucked up hotel where she starts having to deal with her husband trying to kill her and stuff even before you add all that in she's just deeply troubled and the movie is so good at quietly establishing that because right when you first see her she's just so skittish and her physicality as the character. She's very cagey from the beginning about her husband when there's a doctor who sees Danny. She's very like not wanting to dive into what's actually going on in this relationship. She's very clearly a broken woman right from the start and the casting of Shelley Duvall is incredible because in the novel apparently this character is described as you know this conventionally attractive blonde woman. That's just not as interesting as Shelley Duvall. I mean, I do think she's very, very pretty. I've seen too many Robert Altman movies to not have that opinion, but she's not conventionally attractive. She's she's very skinny. She's got very sharp features. She's got kind of loose hair. The way she's costumed and made up in the movie is... Yeah, it really sells this character as someone who's barely keeping it together and just is constantly stressed. And then the film, you know, they drive up to the hotel to do everything. And they bring up that what happened there years ago was the Donner Party, you know, where a bunch of settlers like ate each other, amongst other things. And then it's also brought up when Jack first goes to the hotel that 10 years earlier, there was a man named Brady who killed his two children or is. 10 and 12 and then after killing the two children he put a shotgun through his head and killed himself and then they start being in the hotel and doing all the normal shit and then Danny sees all these visions and one of the visions are of two twin girls who are dressed in sort of like a 1920s fashion but they're twins but Grady the kids are stated to be 10 and 12. There's a very cyclical sort of nature to the film in the sense that outside of the hotel there's the implication that the violence that happened within the hotel is rather inevitably going to repeat again. It's kind of like in the Persona series of video games. I don't know how familiar you are with those. The shadows in the series are an exaggeration of what's going on under the surface. It's basically just that played up to 11. And I kind of view the Overlook Hotel as being more or less the same thing. In the Overlook Hotel, everyone's inherent sort of traits are played up to an extreme extent. Like Jack becomes more angry 
Wendy becomes more twitchy and Danny becomes more just sort of weird. He starts having more conversations with Tony. That sort of thing just happens. I think it's really vital. They become more of what they were. These aspects were all in their characters beforehand. Danny was lonely and implied to be abused and all these things. And Wendy is sort of neurotic about it to the point of when she has the psychiatrist with her at the beginning, she's kind of like, oh, you know, it's not actually that bad. I'm doing fine. Danny's doing fine. When clearly you can tell that she's kind of cracking up a little bit there. But then the hotel, much like the Scatman Crothers character says, it accentuates. It's like looking into a microscope of awful shit people do to each other. And that's why I kind of think that the book, which I haven't read, so I shouldn't say too much about it, the sort of redemption of Jack Torrance as a character just conceptually feels really weird to me. In the context of the novel, he's a lot more of a tragic figure. In this film, it makes no sense for him to have be a redemptive character because he's a piece of shit from the start. And I would say that's also just from the standpoint of writing about abuse, the more interesting way of doing it. A lot of the time. There are a lot of abusive father figures and patriarchs who fancy themselves controllers of everything and just fuck up constantly. Some of those people, you know, never apologize. They never grow, they never change, and that sucks to say, but that happens, right? And there's the scene in the bar where Jack is talking to the bartender, and he is just complaining about how he can't have a drink, even though drinking is unequivocally bad for him to do. My son is always complaining about how I beat him or whatever. He's kind of totally dismissive of his family, even behind their backs. I think those sequences with the bartender and the one a little later with Grady are some of my favorites in the film. The one with Grady is everyone talks about the 180 degree rule violation, you know, in the bathroom, which is a honestly a well done effect. It's pretty disorienting to a viewer, especially if you're like me when I was 15 and you're only used to very like conventional cinema. Seeing something that's that abrasive and that purposeful is really important on just a level of aesthetics. But I think another crucial aspect of those sequences is the way they all inscribe the history of both the hotel and the history of America, basically, into it. So you have the conversation with the bartender, which deviates into bemoaning the white man's burden. The film basically explicitly ties questions of gender domination and racial domination together, which is why later in the film, Jack is so horrified to discover that the person coming to the hotel to save Wendy and Dan Danny is black. He reverts into fitting in with this 1920s social atmosphere of repeatedly saying the N-word, expressing like a horror that his sort of patriarchal authority is being challenged. And his attitude becomes one of, well, if I can't have them, nobody can. If I am supposed to be the one in control, we once understood this as a society, but now all these other malign social forces have conspired to remove me as head of the household. And I think that's part of the reason why the film is really scary is because, you know, patriarchy is a thing. And also, there's all these contemporary social panics about protecting your children from gay people or like trans grooming or whatever. And I, I can't help but find the parallels there, if that makes sense, of the frustrated father figures of the world going, we no longer have a total domination over these people, even though we still have a lot. We need to re-secure ourselves into these past gender norms. 
So what I'm saying in those so many words is Jack is like a return to tradition kind of guy. If he were around now, he'd be posting the worst memes. One thing I kind of see people say about The Shining a lot is that it's a really, really good film. They enjoy watching it. They enjoy the cinematography and the acting and all of Kubrick's sort of Kubrick magic. But that scene where they say the N-word over and over takes them out of it. And I don't want to exactly be the guy to defend a movie where a bunch of white men have an n-word laid in conversation. But I do think that conversation is very, very telling about these characters and what they think about people of other races. They are explicitly connecting it to defending the family, and they are explicitly connecting it to the settler colonial project writ large. He literally says the white man's burden, which is like the famous Rudyard Kipling pro-colonialism poem that I had to read in an intro to English lit class once. Even not getting all that deep into it, there's the sort of sense that someone who is this willing to just go along with another dude's racism is probably not a very good person in general. That's very clearly communicated. On just a gut level, most people, if someone was talking to them and then they just started out of nowhere complaining about N-words, this person would be like, I'm leaving. This is, I don't want to be a part of this conversation. But Jack is like, no, I'll hear this guy out. Keep going on about the N-words. It's vital that it's Grady who does that. We pointed out earlier that the murder of the two daughters that was reported in 1970 is inconsistent with the Grady twins, as they're called, that were given in the film, who are both twins. And also they're dressed like it's the 1920s. The rest of the atmosphere of the film, in its kind of Baroque descent into hell conclusion, takes place in this very 1920s atmosphere. That's the final shot has us in mind. So then there's the question of, okay, then what is the relationship of these girls to plot? And that furthers the sort of cyclical quality of it. Everyone is sort of being reincarnated and fulfilling the same roles over and over again. It's basically like New Game Plus for being a domestic abuser. Yeah, it's New Game Plus, but forever and ever. You're just speedrunning it at a certain point. Part of the reason I think that resonates is it's so unlike, it's a horror film that feels so, for a western produced horror film it's one that doesn't feel like its viewpoint of like hell or suffering or sin is particularly christian if that makes sense contrast it with the exorcist which is one of the most fucking catholic movies ever made contrast to this where the understanding of the otherworldly is not a christian notion of sin and salvation which it also rejects through not having the redemption of jack but also the whole thing has an atmosphere of a dark ritual you have those choral music things that are playing which is oh it feels almost occult to a certain extent it feels haunted in a way that is less recognizably christian religious tropes if that makes sense the new game plus comment was kind of a joke but when i think about it there's almost something very video gamey to the structure of the hotel if that makes sense yeah and it has a certain silent hill two-ishness about it it was obviously very influential on Silent Hill 2, which I don't know if you've ever played Silent Hill 2, but this dramatic conclusion of that game takes place in a hotel, and I'm pretty sure that the hotel room where a very pivotal plot moment happens is literally number 237. So, you know, obvious nod to The Shining there, but there's also just this sort of inconsistent expansiveness of the hotel. But also there is a pseudo kind of mathematical structure to it. It would be one thing if it was just all inconsistent and all twisty, like if it were just a dream world. But it also has all of these 
these perfect geometric shapes, people overlooking these mazes that are perfectly constructed in on themselves. The rooms all kind of blur into each other, but it isn't just entirely inconsistent. There's a consistency to the inconsistentness of it. The film is just, you get a sense of being trapped in a loop. And the maze is a perfect logical conclusion to that. Which is where we end the film. The conclusion is great. The thing is, this movie just flies by. I always forget that. For whatever reason, I always assume whenever I watch it again that it's going to be long. Or I'm going to be like, oh, this is the time I'll realize this movie is bad. Never happens. It's effortlessly enjoyable to watch. When we were at the theater, I just lost track of time. We were watching it because I was just so completely blown away by it, despite having seen it a bunch of times. Every time I see it, there's this, I sort of revert to being a 15-year-old who's seeing it for the first time. For a director that is so utterly cynical, I feel like a lot of Kubrick films, just in how effortlessly well they play and how watchable they are, they sort of revert you to a childlike state of innocence about, oh my god, I didn't realize movies can be this good, if that makes any sense. There's one thing Kubrick is consistently in awe of in his films. It's not really people, it's technology. And that's both in a literal sense of The Shining is one of the most pioneering uses of Steadicam in American cinema, or the way Barry Lyndon uses all this sort of natural lighting, or 2001 has all these pioneering special effects work in it. And that ethos feels very contemporary in ways that I would probably find more sinister if it were done by a Marvel director or whatever, you know? His sort of techno-fetishism feels very genuine, but also techno-fetishism is where the rest of English language American cinema went after 2001 and Star Wars later and all that, like this sort of... But Kubrick's techno-fetishism is different, if I can argue with myself, in that his is not merely a special effects one, his is a question of photographic effect. He is someone who you can tell is just a camera nerd at heart and just wants to produce the most striking images he can through a camera. Everything is done to produce a very particular effect. And I think a big thing that sets Kubrick apart from the sort of contemporary MCU director is that I don't want to say Kubrick is totally uninterested in telling stories, but he's not super interested in elaborating on stories, if that makes sense. There are so many sequences in The Shining that show so much but elaborate so little, and I think that's genius. I think The Shining starts off structurally as a very conventional piece of filmmaking. And then as the mask slowly slips, you realize that it kind of morphs into this very formalist experimental piece. Kubrick explicitly cited David Lynch's Eraserhead as an inspiration. And there's no real POV character in the film. And that, it's never shot from someone's clear perspective. Everything is kind of always up in the air. You're bird's eye viewing it. You're sort of God's eye viewing it at points. But also there are things that don't make sense from an objective perspective either. So you're sort of going, okay, who is this? Who am I listening to here? That's kind of why I didn't want to read the novel before watching the movie and talking about it, because the film stands on its own as having a mystique to so many of the images that I'm sure the novel has three pages explaining, and in my head that might ruin it. There's the scene with the guy in the bear costume, which I'm sure the novel goes in depth about, but that kind of just works better as a mysterious image 
the old lady works better as a mysterious image. That's what I think anyways. But maybe I'm just making excuses for not wanting to read. It's also if you've read the novel of 2001, it becomes a very deeply unsatisfying experience. Literally every single idea that they were going for is explained in the prose. And I actually don't think it ruins the film for me because I can just regard the way 2000 the novel looks at it as an interpretation of events. And then the same thing with The Shining, where I can have my own reading of the film that diverges significantly from the novel. I can regard the novel as just another interpretation of the events, but it is nonetheless quite frustrating when you read. I think 2001 is a far worse example of that, though. Well, wasn't 2001 the novel literally written as the film was being made? Yeah, yeah. There was a kind of a co-production aspect to it. It does feel more like an actual interpretation as a opposed to The Shining, which predates the film, and Kubrick is like, I'm gonna make this better. And he did that with, he co-wrote the film with Diane Johnson. But I've always kind of wondered about her particular influence on the making of the film. Getting a novelist to work on the screenplay with you. A different novelist than the one who wrote the novel. Yeah, but getting one who, I don't know much about her body of work, so I can't really comment on it, but the film feels so, it does feel like a sort of experimental novel. Like, it feels like at point it's like you're reading something by Beckett or whatever. There is a real high modernist fashion. Everything is falling apart beneath you. There's no sense of perspective or character. And it just gets like increasingly terrifying as you're trying to make sense of it. And there's a lot of, I'm sure, films that are sort of hackingly taking from The Shining, but... I do not think there's a single film that does quite what The Shining does as well as The Shining. The Shining clearly has reverberated through film. And there are films that came up before it that you can very much compare it to. But none of them quite are The Shining. And that's why I think it's such a great film. It has single-handedly captured a series of emotions and feelings that were previously not fully realized. And this is the complete realization of these things. I'd say. And I would say you could apply that statement more broadly just to Kubrick as a filmmaker. There's filmmakers who have been influential on him, and there's filmmakers who he's influenced, some better than others, but there's no one who has quite done what he has done, and I really don't think anyone is ever going to be him. There are certainly other good filmmakers, but those other good filmmakers are good in different ways. Well, Stanley Kubrick, he's very singular. As time has gone on, I think I've increasingly regarded his influence. I think his films are great, I should say, preemptive of this. Regard his influence as almost kind of malign on a lot of more contemporary filmmakers who I think really like the surface ideas or the surface technical prowess that Kubrick gives, but they forget that there's an ethos that comes with that. A lot of filmmakers like the hyper-symmetrical framing, the kind of stilted acting, the choices of music, and that's all great. But then you get films that don't really understand why these choices were made. All three of these films I could call my favorite Kubrick film, depending on how I'm feeling, honestly. I think right now I'm still kind of in a weird honeymoon phase with A Clockwork Orange. Pick basically any of the films he made and you're probably gonna have an alright time. Well, even like the negative reviews of Eyes Wide Shut or whatever, even a lot of the most searingly negative assessments of the film sort of have to go like, oh, but you can't really deny 
nine that there is a certain brilliance here, even if it's like a misapplied brilliance. We are increasingly entering the Reddit phase of this podcast of filmmakers that were popular when I was 15 on like IMDb forums and shit like that. I'm kind of running out of steam now, I'm sorry. We've already been talking about Kubrick for a good couple of hours. We should probably have like a concluding sentiment. I'll find a way to make this coherent. It's as good as it could ever be. I'll just slap Salisbury Hill at the end to lead us out.